Healthcare Unfiltered, Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is about pathology. What in the world is the specialty of pathology? What do pathologists do? How do you become a pathologist? What kind of training do you need to have to be a pathologist? There's a lot of questions that I believe are worthy of asking and answering when it comes to the specialty of pathology. This podcast will be very helpful for any medical student, any even resident in pathology or resident in a different specialty that is thinking or contemplating switching into pathology. You know, when I was seeing patients, I was 100% reliant on pathologists. I pre- you cannot, you can never execute and make a decision when it comes to taking care of patients. You just simply cannot unless you trust the pathologist that you are de- tre- working with because the pathologist is going to give you the actual diagnosis. And of course, you can look at the stains and the reports and the slides, all of this, but ultimately the pathologist is going to provide you with the diagnosis. You take that diagnosis from the pathologist who looked at the slides and you integrate that into the clinical story and the clinical scenario that the that you are uh, um, analyzing for the patient that you are caring for and you make a clinical decision about treatment and so on. So uh, to help us understand pathology, I have invited Dr. Sanam Logavi from MD Anderson Cancer Center to sit down and talk to us about pathology training, residency fellowship, what does her day look like, what type of research and subspecialty she chose. Uh, This is a lot of fun. You got to trust me on this, guys. This is a lot of fun. You're going to enjoy this podcast episode. But before I air it, please don't forget to subscribe to the show, write a brief review, let your friends and colleagues know about it. And you can watch it, by the way. You can watch the entire episode on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, Of course, leave a comment there, subscribe and like the podcast episode. Without further ado, Dr. Sanam Lagavi on Healthcare Unfiltered. All right, folks. Well, I'm really excited about this because I have a dear colleague and a friend, Dr. Sanam Lagavi, who is on today's podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. She is going to dissect for us the pathology profession as an enigma. So that's really going to be very exciting. For all of you pathologists who are listening about this, I'm going to be challenging Dr. Lagavi a lot about what the pathologists do. She doesn't know that yet, though. So we'll see. So Sanam, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I really appreciate you taking time of your schedule. I know how things busy are, and we are taping this actually towards the end of 2021. We are going to air it um, in uh, probably late February 2022 for those of you who are listening. So let's start by quick introduction as to where you work, who you are, what you do day in and day out, and um, uh, tell us uh, who you are. Hi, Chadi. Thank you so much for having me as a guest on Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm very excited to be here. Um, so as you know, my name is Sanam Logabi, and I am a hematopathologist slash molecular pathologist. That's how I write it. So that's how I say it too. Um, at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. Uh, I did my residency in pathology at Cedars-Sinai in uh, Los Angeles. And I came here, did a fellowship in surgical pathology, hematopathology, and molecular pathology at MD Anderson, and then stayed on as as staff. And I've been on staff since 2015. The bulk of my practice, obviously, is HemePath, focused on myeloid neoplasms, um, and the molecular that relates to HemePath and molecular uh, and uh, myeloid neoplasms. So, Sanam, today's podcast, though, is is a little bit unique because... We want to try to make sure that listeners, whether they are students in medical school, uh, residents, whether they are the lay public and the general folks who listen to this show understand what pathology is, 
but we're going to take them through that through your lens as somebody who went to school and so on. So, so you went to school where? I went to school in Iran, in Tehran, Iran. Uh, I graduated from a school called Azad University in Tehran. Uh, so our medical school system is a little bit different. We go to medical school directly from high school. Uh, so I was in a six-year medical school program uh, and then graduated medical school in Iran. Uh, came here pretty much right after I graduated and then worked for a year and a half in, at a research lab at Stanford, at Eugene Butcher's lab. He's an immunologist. Um, did some research there and then applied to residency and then got into residency and, you know, the, the fellowship uh, track and um, the, the clinical track. I went to medical school in Syria, which is very similar to Iran as well. It's a six year after, after high school. So during medical school, uh, were you exposed to pathology as a possibility? Did you even know what pathology is? Like, what was your understanding as you were applying for residency? Uh, how did you, what, how much did you know about pathology to, uh, to apply for it? Actually, you know what? I have to tell you, my understanding of pathology was very limited. So uh, our exposure in Iran, uh, I think similar to what it is here in medical school, was very limited. We had, you know, in, as part of our basic science courses, we had a histology course uh, where we would, you know, go look at these like ancient slides that were probably at the lab for like 50 years or what. Um, and, you know, I think that was, Part of the, the basic science course. And then we got pathology, uh, again, either as part of basic science or right before our clinical rotations. Uh, but again, very, very limited, completely unlike what you know pathology practice is. It was in a very protected environment in a lab. You would go look at the slides and then the exam was basically, we would memorize like what the, what the actual slides looked like as opposed to learning the histology. We'd memorize what those looked like to get, you know, to get a good score on the, um, on the exam. And the way I was actually exposed to pathology was completely outside of my medical school. It's because my best friend's dad was a pathologist. Um, and it's interesting because his practice in Iran, he had a private lab. His practice is a world different from what I actually do now, because, you know, first of all, because of the way pathology has changed throughout the years. And then obviously, you know, being in an academic setting in a large cancer center uh, is nothing like having a private lab of your own. But I think that was my exposure. And that's what got me interested in, in pathology in, in the first place. You know, what's, <clears throat> what's interesting, Sanam, is that you mentioned that the medical students even here, um, they don't get exposed to pathology. And when I was in medical school, you're absolutely correct. I would go look at these slides and I would have to remember the colors. Like, okay, this looks yeah. like, it's a bright uh, pink. It's probably the thyroid. I have to remember, I had no idea what I was looking at. So so how, I mean, how, how do students can make a decision what they want to do if they don't have that exposure? And is it really a curriculum issue or do you think it's like an afterthought specialty? I think it's both. I think it's one is it's a curriculum issue because, you know, when you don't have exposure to something and I think, you know, there are preconceived notions of what pathology is about. And I think when people imagine a pathologist, um, they imagine, you know, someone sitting in a dark room, looking at a microscope all day with no exposure to anybody or, you know, no exposure to patients. And we can talk about that. There are specialties in pathology that have plenty of patient exposure, if that's something that, you know, you're interested in. Uh, and then the other thing is autopsy, right? You know, people think of pathologists and they think of, you know, the guy in CSI that does the autopsies. Uh, but it's really so much broader than that. And I think one of the things that, you know, I think you could say this about a lot of subs or specialties in medicine in general, uh, but I think with pathology, it's like really pronounced how you can tailor your practice to your interests and to your um you know, to what you actually enjoy doing. If you love doing research, you can have a career that's essentially focused on research with very little clinical, you know, work. If you like doing clinical work, if you like interacting with patients, you can be a blood banker. You can do cytology and do procedures on patients. Um, if you like, you know, I mean, even between the subspecialties in, in pathology, you know, you can go all the way from autopsy to being a molecular pathologist that essentially does, you know, 
all molecular sequencing-based studies, um, you know, heavily focused on research. Uh, so I think it's very different. And I think there's not enough time in, in at least the way the curricula are built right now uh, for students to get exposure to all of these different areas. And I think one of the things that is, um, you know, there's a stereotype for pathologists, right? People imagine this um, introverted, uh, you know, person that doesn't like to interact with anyone. And it's, I think that's certainly, it may be, you know, we may have some people like that in pathology, uh, but that's definitely not, you know, not the normal routine pathologist you're going to come across, at least nowadays, I think. So, um, you know, introvert, extrovert is not specific to one specialty or another, but we're going to go over these different ones, uh, uh, different specialties. Uh, but I guess if I go back to you, um, if you did not have exposure to, you said your friend's dad had a pathology lab. Do you think you would have, do you think that played a role in making you want to apply to pathology? I think it certainly played a role. Although I think what I imagined from seeing him practice pathology was completely different from what my actual, you know, my career turned out to be. Um, not not necessarily in a bad way or a good way, but it was just completely different. different. And actually, I can tell you that even when I did, when I started my residency in 2008, the way people practiced pathology back then was completely different from what it is now, even. You and know, I think- We're going to talk about that. Don't spill the beans yet, but yeah, go ahead. Okay, sure. And the other thing I want to say, I think, you know, one thing I want to tell medical students or- uh, you know, people considering pathology, I think one of the difficult things about pathology is, you know, I was telling you, we would, I, I actually would memorize, you know, I, I'd look at a slide, I'd look at the gross image of the slide and say, you know, the one that looks like a rabbit was a liver, you know, the one that looks like, because it is so difficult to grasp the concept. It's almost like a foreign language when you first start. It's like you're trying to learn something that is completely foreign to you. And I think that throws some people off you know, because they think, you know, I'm never going to be able to do this. This is difficult. Uh, it's much easier to, to, you know, at least in the beginning, to understand concepts in internal medicine or understand concepts in surgery because you have more exposure and at least people are, you know, speaking the same language. But I think, you know, there's a point in pathology residency and everybody tells you this, but it has to happen to you for you to believe it. I think it happens some, sometime during your third year when things actually start making sense. You know, you look at slides and you actually get it. So we're gonna talk about the residency. Um, you started the residency uh, in 2008. The residency is three years, four years? Four years. Four APCP years. is four years. So if you want to do exclusively AP or exclusively CP, there are three-year programs, but the majority of the programs in the country now offer APCP tracks. And for those who are listening, AP is anatomic pathology. And CP is clinical pathology. So what do they actually teach you? How is the residency structured? Uh, you know, you, you come in, I presume you still have no idea how, you know, look at slides. hundred <laughs> percent. So, you know, it, it's just like, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty intimidated how that actually looks like. So, Take us through the curriculum of residency and, and what do you actually have to go through to get to that comfort zone in year three? So I think, you know, different programs are structured differently. And, you know, I obviously don't have detailed information on every program in the country. But I think um, one of the things that is shared is, you know, the concept of double scoping or, you know, you look at the cases with your attending at the same time. So how most people do it, I would say is, first of all, you get thrown in, you know, from, from day one, they give you cases and they're like, you know, look up the histories, write up the reports, do what you can. And you look up, you know, there are, there, there are reports from your attending in, in the computer that you can go look up. You know, a lot of it is basically like looking at how your attending does things and learning from them. So you, you look at the cases, obviously you have no idea what you're looking at, uh, but you try to, you know, make your best guess at what you think the diagnosis is. And obviously there are, you know, there are books, there's now plenty of online resources that you can use to teach you basic histology, what normal can look like and what's abnormal. 
And then you preview the case. You usually have a day or two, depending on the cycle, on the turnaround cycle of the program to look at the case. And then you you take the case to your attending and you look at it together. You know, you may have been completely wrong. They point it out to you. They teach you things. Or you actually may have been right. You get a pat on the back and you're like, awesome job. So a lot of it is from double scoping, but I think the way you learn the most is just looking at a lot of cases. It's just like anything else. You know, I, I view, um, have you, I think it was the tipping point, Malcolm Gladwell's book. I don't remember if it was the tipping point or some other book where he refers to the 10,000 hour, you know, for you to master something, you have to do it at least for 10,000 hours. Boy. And I think that's very true for pathology. So the more you see the you know, things start jumping out at you. And it's just a lot of it is pattern recognition, right? But I think in my mind, what separates amazing pathologists from, you know, good pathologists is that it's not necessarily just, just the visual skills or the pattern recognition is that I think the really exceptional pathologists you see are the ones that are also good clinicians. You know, they they actually do the clinical pathologic correlation themselves. Uh, so I think for sure, you know, like p- people talk about having the eye that is in and of itself a talent, but it's a lot of it is also about just like putting the whole picture together, right? You, using the clinical information that you have uh, in formulating a diagnosis and informing, you know, helping your clinicians and guiding them throughout the process. So do they give you like a lot of courses into the different stains and, and they like, you know, the, you, you, I mean, is this something that part of the curriculum, this is when you use Congo Red, this is what, this is what Congo Red is. I mean, like, is this part of the teaching? No, no, most of it is not. So, you know, you, you get exposed to the different, you basically get, like I said, you get thrown into the, you know, the general practice of, of your department. So you, you know, you essentially learn by doing, right? You see your attending orders a Congo red stain for, you know, amyloid, and then you go look it up. And, you know, obviously if you ask people, they tell you about it, but it's not like they have, they have like specific set um, classes that teach you what the different stains are. You essentially learn by doing it. You know, you learn the IHCs, you memorize the CDs, uh, the CD markers by, by practicing, by seeing a lot of cases. It's all you're just exposed to. The, it's, it's just like radiology. You know, I, I guess it's not even like radiology because I think radiologists take some physics courses and basic courses like that. We really don't. Um, you know, you get some histology training. You, you know, there's always like in the beginning, there are some didactic lectures that different attendings do. Um, but but it's, I would say that for the most part, at least as far as I'm aware, it's not a structured training where they tell you, oh, the H&E stain is composed of these chemicals and this is, you know, how the reaction, it doesn't work like that. You essentially just get thrown in and you learn on the job. Do you have to learn how to cut slides? You do. So one of the, actually one of the things I miss the most about, you know, because I rarely do surgical pathology anymore, I actually don't do it at all, is doing frozen sections. So at an institution like what, ours- What is a frozen section for listeners? Okay, so a frozen section is when you have to give an immediate diagnosis on a piece of tissue while the patient is still in surgery, right? Because the surgeon wants to make a decision based on your diagnosis. Let's say if they're doing a Whipple, right, for a pancreatic adenocarcinoma, and they see a nodule in the liver, um, they're going to take that nodule and give it to you. And if that's metastatic adenocarcinoma, they're going to abort the Whipple. They're not going to do the Whipple, as opposed to if it's an adenoma in the liver, they're going to continue. So sometimes the stakes are very high. Uh, and sometimes you do a frozen section just to reassure the patient that they got lesional tissue. And that's what, you know, what, that's what happens most in HEMPA. Let's say they're doing a biopsy, the patient has a retroorbital mass, and the surgeon wants to know that they actually got lesional tissue. So they'll call you and they say, you know, can you look at this tissue? You look at the, you know, we, we have rapid stains that we do. And so for, for that uh, practice and for doing frozen sections, especially in smaller programs, and a lot of it is, you know, basically to, to ensure that the, the residents are trained well, the residents are the, the people that are cutting the tissue and making the frozen sections. 
I think, you know, at a practice like ours at MD Anderson, I know our search path felt, we don't have residents, we only have fellows. Uh, but I know they don't cut tissue because the volume here is just insane. So we have, you know, technicians that help cut the tissue and the fellows are just looking at the, the slides. But in some of the smaller practices, including, you know, where I did residency, wasn't even that small, but we did our own frozen section. So we would cut our own tissue. So how often, that's interesting. So how often do you make a mistake? And how often, I mean, frozen, pro, I presume there's obviously an element where, um, so, so the frozen section is clearly different than the full pathological uh, diagnosis. Uh, wh like, wh what do you do differently? You do quick stains and you have to on the spot, the surgeon is in the operating room and he, 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 he give you this and it's like, I need diagnosis within like 30 minutes because I got to decide yeah. what or not. Uh, this can't actually 30 yeah. minutes is they, they're not that patient <laughs> and you they, they won't wait 30 minutes this can't so, be error free though it must be like some right it's not error free and i i will say that you know some uh some diagnoses are more prone to error than others uh but i think you know both the pathologists and the surgeons recognize the limitations right so i think Let's say if you're making a diet, nobody makes a diagnosis of lymphoma or subtypes lymphoma on a frozen section, because you know, in order to do that, you need additional studies, including IHC profiling. And for that, you need to fix the tissue overnight. It gets embedded in paraffin. Later on, you cut the sections. You have, first of all, you have better morphology. You know, with, with frozen sections, you compromise the morphology because you don't fix the, the tissue appropriately. Uh, but still, you know, a, most of our frozen sections are actually margins and nodes, right? So for margins, the surgeon wants to know, wants to make sure that they got an adequate margin around the, around the lesional tissue. And so they'll give you, let's say, they'll give you a piece of oral mucosa and they say, is it, is it cancer or is it cancer-free? So that's, you know, not too hard to do for the most part, let's say, unless you're dealing with a well-differentiated squamous carcinoma. For the most part, it's not that hard to do. Or they'll give you a node, you know, they want to know, they'll give you a sentinel node, lymph node in a patient that has breast cancer. If you see metastatic tumor, they're going to do a full lymph node dissection. So again, that's not very hard unless you're looking for isolated tumor cells. Uh, but, you know, there are instances well, where, you know, we, we call a node negative and then the next day on deeper sections, it turns out that there is actually tumor. It's not that the pathologist made a mistake. It's inherent to the process, right? There is some error that is inherent to the process. And I think when both parties, both the pathologist and the surgeon understand these inherent limitations, um, it's fine. Uh, and they can make informed decisions. Uh, but sometimes, you know, the mistakes happen, obviously. And, uh, but, you know, fortunately, it's not very frequent. So then you go through residency. Um, and during residency, do you need, well, first of all, yeah. I mean, how many subspecialties within pathology th there are? And the reason I ask is because within oncology, obviously, as you know, you know, I joke with people. I say, you're going to be specialized in tumors of the right kidney as opposed to <laughs> Because, I mean, sometimes it's embarrassment of the riches. You can't be always that specialized. But um, I guess my question is, there are two career paths. One is general pathologist, I presume, uh, where you don't need to do subspecialty. And one is subspecialty. Maybe I'm wrong. But tell us through, you get year three, year four, and what are the options in terms of deciding where you're going to go uh, career-wise after residency? Sure. So I will say for the most part, that is right. But with the caveat that even if you want to be a general pathologist, surgical pathologist, almost nobody is, you know, even smaller private practices are not hiring anyone right out of residency. They want you to do a surgical pathology fellowship. And I think that goes back to historic reasons because pathology used to be a five-year residency. And I really think that you do need that fifth year to focus on, even if you want to do general search path, to focus on, you know, fine tuning your skills. Um, but yes, I think, you know, in the, in the academic setting, it, you, you rarely ever see general surgical pathologists anymore. It, it just doesn't exist because most academic centers, 
are super sub-specialized now. Um, in the community setting, you still do have uh, surgical pathologists, which in my opinion is actually much harder than being a specialist because you have to know so much, right? I mean, I think the depth of what you have to know is not as, as, um, you know, as much, but you still have to know so much and you have to know, you know, how to triage the cases, when to consult a specialist. Uh, I think heme path and derm path are the, the type of cases that get sent out the most uh, just because they're either difficult or complicated. You know, they get sent out by surgical pathologists. Uh, but, you know, I have friends that I did residency with that are now doing private practice, general surge path. Um, and then you have this, the, you know, the academic or subspecialty uh, pathway. Um, and even in private practice, I think, you know, most somatopathologists are subspecialized and most dermatopathologists are subspecialized uh, by training. And then, um, so that, you know, for that, that's an, that's an extra. So that's you, you can do that during the fourth year. No, that's extra training. So almost everybody in pathology does fellowship. You know, nobody gets everybody. a job even straight out private, of residency. Even if you do private practice, yes. everybody does a fellowship. So I finish four years. I would say ninety-nine point nine percent of okay. people. So I finish four years, then I need to do a fellowship. My yes. options of fellowships are hematopath, dermatopath surgical path what else oh many more so cytopathology bone and soft tissue uh lung breast uh oh. gi wow. uh blood banking autopsy uh molecular um i'm sure there are more that i'm uh oh gu uh, you know kidney prostate bladder um let's see what else uh did we say you path so you you would apply to uh, this is like an extra year or two years yes to apply to a different program or the same program yes to do that yes absolutely there's a there's a fellowship so our fellowship programs are not yet um you know i think most internal internal medicine fellowships have have eras and they go through the match we don't have a match for for pathology fellowship at least yet it's still a you know free for all um, but, but yeah, there's a separate application process. You have to apply again, go through training. Uh, and obviously, you know, there are places that are known, you know, that are better known for certain subspecialties, uh, and it gets a little bit more competitive. There are specialty subspecialties that are more competitive, mostly because they have lucrative job options or they have better job markets. Um, but, you know, I think all specialties, and, you know, I always say this to our trainees and our, we don't have residents, but, you know, we have fellows and I tell them, you know, I think the best thing you can do for yourself is just to choose the type of practice or if you're apply, applying for fellowships is choose what you like, because if, if you like something, the chances that you're going to be good at it are much higher. Don't choose based on you know, the money or the job market, because those things change. Which one and is the most lucrative? Which one is derm the most? Path. Derm ah, path. Derm path. Derm path is the most lucrative. So I can tell you that I'm not going to name any names, but um, because, you know, I th the, the people in the path community know this, but there are academic institutions where the dermatopathologist in that institution is the second highest paid person after the football coach. No way. So, <laughs> wow. So imagine that. Yeah. Why, why is that though? Why? I mean, because usually you pay because, based on uh, how much revenue you can bring. Right. Because of 88305. So 88305 is a CPT code. It's a biopsy CPT code. So, you know, a dermatopathologist can look at 200 cases a day because, you know, you, the, the number of cases they can look at is much higher. I see. Um, and so, you know, as opposed to, let's say, a breast case with margins, sure, sure, sure. one case can take an entire day and it's an 88307. So, you know, I it's not see. that different. So you're essentially charging more. Interesting. Interesting. So for those of you pathologists in residence who are listening, this is the one to go to, I guess. <laughs> so, so what got you into HEMPATH? What, what made you decide to apply for a fellowship in HEMPATH? And I think you did that at MD Anderson, you said? I did. 
So yeah, this, this may be a this may be a repetitive story for some of your some of your listeners if they're if they're past trainees because we talked about this on on our podcast once. But I'll tell you the story. It's an interesting one. So I because you know I like expensive shoes, so I wanted to do derm. I'm not somehow <laughs> you know? I'm not, somehow I'm not shocked about this. Anna. What am I gonna but say? But you know what? Before you talk about the shoes, I I always like to plug in what my guests are doing on the side. Uh, uh maybe you want to say you said about your podcast uh the path pod yes yeah we have path pod so we have you know so this is a a podcast that michael arnold christina arnold um kamran mirza sarah jang myself and andrew belizzi i hope i'm not missing anyone uh so we have different different themes uh so michael arnold uh myself and andrew have an ihc podcast where we talk about, you know, immunohistochemical um, stains and different tumor types, their applications. It's mostly an educational podcast, but it's part of the PathPod series. So you said you love um, expensive shoes. And again, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so that led you to want to do Dermpath. Dermpath, <laughs> of course. No, I think, well, obviously, you know, the lucrative. And then it's, you know, because it's the most lucrative, it's the most competitive to get. And I think, you know, that it was kind of a challenge for me. Uh, and my residency didn't have a Durham Path Fellowship. So um, I, I applied, I, you know, I did my research in Durham Path. I had a couple of US CAP posters and projects. I went to the ASDP meeting in my, which is the American Society of Dermatopathology meeting. And uh, I think it was actually in Atlanta uh, that I went to that meeting. And, you know, I did, I played all of my cards, right? Um, but again, we didn't have an internal a fellowship program. So I was applying to programs where I had internal competitors, right? So I was already kind of at a disadvantage. Um, I did a, uh, I did an away rotation at UCSF and I did an away rotation at uh, Beth Israel. And then I applied and I, I didn't get a position until very, very late in the, in the application process. I actually at the end and ended getting a position at South Carolina which I turned down for this heme path fellowship. And I'll tell you how that happened. So I was on, um, I was on my heme path rotation and residency and um, my attending who I absolutely adored. I loved, unfortunately she's passed away, but she was young. She passed away young. She had um, brain meningioma. So I was on this, uh, I was on my uh, heme path rotation at the time when I got, you know, my rejection, like my final rejection from Beth Israel, where I had done uh, a rotation, I was devastated. I was crying, you know, hysterical, being a complete, you know, Middle Eastern. I was just like throwing that. So she came to me and she's like, what's going on? What happened? And I said, you know, I, they didn't take me. It's awful. I don't know what to do. My life is over. My life is ruined. It was like dramatic. She's like, what are you talking about? Who cares about derm path anyway? Do heme path. It's much better. I, was like, I don't want to do a heme path. I want to do a germ path. And she was like, you know, trust me, do heme path. It's better. It has a better future. I said, yeah, but it's already December. Where am I going to get a heme path fellowship? And I had already signed up for a surge path fellowship at MD Anderson. And they didn't, they actually rejected me from the, I always tease now Dr. Prieto, who's the head of germ path at MD Anderson. I always tease them and I say, you didn't take me. But, you know, it, in, in, in good spirit, they, I had tough competitors. So, um, and they didn't, you know, they didn't give me the spot. Um, Memorial Stone Kettering, I had applied. They didn't give me the spot. So I, um, she said, you know, let me call Jeff Medeiros. And Jeff Medeiros is actually my boss now. He, he's the head of HemePath here. Actually, so it's right next to me. He's probably hearing me now. And he's, she picked up the phone. She Googled his name, picked up the phone. And he was her program director and her mentor back when they were both in California. She picks up the phone. She's like, hi, Jeff, how are you doing? And she's like, and, uh, you know, Dr. Madero says, Rhonda, nice to hear from you. We haven't, you know, we haven't talked for a while. What's going on? And she says, you know, I have this resident here. You have to take her. You have to take her for, you know, 20, I don't know. It was like 2013. I was applying for 2013. And he says, you know, it's really late in the process. We've already interviewed everybody. Um, I, let, you know, let, let me talk to some people here. Let me talk to the program director and see what I can do. So then. He calls within two hours. He, you know, he took my number and application ID, whatever, you know, he did. He calls within two hours and I had applied now online on their portal. Uh, 
two hours and says, you know, if you want to come, you have to come tomorrow because we have a meeting. Yeah, I'm serious. He's like, we have a meeting at the end of this week where, you know, we're voting. We've already interviewed everyone. It's, it's very late in the process. It's just now or never. So my friend who was on, uh, on the rotation with me, I had like a pile of cases this big to do. She's like, you know, I'll do your cases. Just go do your interview. I, I think I paid $1,000 for that ticket. It was like a last minute ticket. I paid think, how many shoes. As a resident. think how many shoes. Think how many shoes you have gotten. One. Probably one. Like If I had done Durham by. Um, so anyhow, I come to Houston. I have like zero confidence that I'm going to get this position. But she had already, you know, put a call in there for me. And then... Um, I called Elvio Silva. I don't know, you know, some pathologists, I'm sure GYN pathologists know him. He's like a legend in GYN pathology world. And he was a retired professor from Emmy Anderson who was working part-time at my residency program then. So I called him from the, I remember I was sitting in the airplane and I called him from the airplane before we took off. And I said, please call Dr. Medeiros and put in a good word for me. I need to get this fellowship. And he said, okay, I'm going to call. So then he called, you know, they, the, what can I say? I had some connections. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I got in, I got in the program. And I think that was the best thing that happened to me in my professional life. It but, but, changed but my career. When this North Carolina then came up like this? South after Carolina. You... No. So, so I had interviewed at the South Carolina place, but I hadn't heard back. And then I came here, I got the position and then they emailed me or called me, I don't know, and said, you know, we're going to take you if you want for the darn path. But then I was like, mm, MD Anderson versus South Carolina. I think I should go to MD Anderson. You yeah, know? But, you know, him path, no shoes, Durham path. Durham, you know, him path is okay, too. It's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you. Him path with a little bit of crypto on the side is not too bad. <laughs> That's perfect. That's really a wonderful story. So so then you you got into MD Anderson to do him path. Is there him path. Um, Yeah, to do a him path. Um, how many years is HEMPATH fellowship? Ah, okay. So that's another story. So HEMPATH fellowship at MD Anderson is two years because we really want to get people that want to pursue academic careers, right? So our first year is dedicated to uh, clinical HEMPATH where you see a lot of cases, you rotate through the different services. And then the second year, you get a lot of off-service time to do research. And that's how, you know, you'll see our fellows are like publication machines, and that's how, how they do it is because during their second year, they focus on their projects. And, you know, the, the, the curriculum is built to, to train academic hematopathologists. So I, w- I had signed up to do a two-year HEMPATH fellowship. But what happened with me is I got, I got a little lucky. So the person that was uh, supposed to be the molecular fellow the year I was going to be a second-year HEMPATH fellow dropped out of the fellowship. And so that position became vacant. And I, I was actually going to do molecular as my third year of fellowship because I wanted to get a job here. And, you know, I knew that the way to get a job here was to do the molecular fellowship. So when that person dropped out, it kind of worked out for me. I got to do my second year as a molecular fellowship. And so I did one year of heme path, one year of uh, molecular, and then uh, got the job. Um, so, so you have to do... You had to do molecular or this was an option? Like you did this extra? I think if I wanted to get the heme path job at MD Anderson, I had to do the molecular because, you know, they wanted someone that's able to do both heme path and molecular. That yeah. was what the position was. So that's really fascinating. So, so then you started your attending career a few years back. Um, and how, what, what do you actually... Um, do in terms of research as well as clinical? You see all HEMPATH cases because the vision of a lot of people who are listening is that you sit somewhere in a basement in a dark room. There's like a shake. microscope. There's a microscope. Okay, it is not. I mean, basement. I do have a microscope, but I don't know. All right, let me it show you. Um, it is not a basement for sure. It's not a basement for sure. I don't know. How do I turn this around? Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, so here is. It's definitely not a basement for those. Here's the view. I, well, it's, yes, you can't see it because it's light, but it's, it's not a basement. View. So I'm actually on the fifth floor of um, the Zide building at MD Anderson. It's it's a 
pretty nice, nice space. By the way, whatever you're going to get a significant increase of applicants after this podcast to pathology residency, and I, I'm going to take completely full credit. You should. We'll uh, see. We'll, we'll give you a commission for it. I'll get that. But so, 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 so um, t- tell us, what does a day in your life look like as a faculty? Sure. So, well, first of all, let me, let me start by saying that we have, I think, 36 or 37 hematopathologists in my department. Not one of us has the exact same practice type. So each of us, you know, has essentially carved out a a niche for ourselves and has tailored their practice to their interests and, you know, um, their skills and their uh, research focus. Mm. So for me, I do, since I do both heme path and molecular um, and, uh, you know, your audience doesn't know, but I'm also a biobanker for, you know, I am the director of the leukemia bank for ECOG Akron. So my practice is very, um, very different compared to everybody else in, in, in my uh, department. But essentially, uh, I have, uh, you know, service days, on like MD Anderson service days, and those uh, entail, uh, you know, me being on the bone marrow service. So we have two different bone marrow services. One is new leukemia service, where all new patients to MD Anderson, uh, you know, that get a bone marrow biopsy, there's one pathologist dedicated to that service that sees all of those bone marrows that day. And I do that once a month because, you know, we have, like I said, 30 some faculty. So everybody does that once a month. And then we have different f- bone marrow follow-up services. And these are the patients that get, you know, surveillance bone marrows. And as part of that, so right now, as you know, heme path is like a complex, um, pro- you know, the practice of heme path is a complex process of, evaluating uh, morphology in addition to a uh, milieu of ancillary studies, right? So I look at the morphology of the bone marrow and then I have the flow cytometry where I assess the bone marrow for measurable residual disease. If it's a um, acute myeloid leukemia case or an ALL case or a myeloma case. Um, And then, um, so that's my bone marrow, uh, follow up bone marrow day. And then I have lymphoma days where, you know, we have um, lymph node biopsies, different um, tissue biopsies that are suspected to be involved by lymphoma. Um, And as part of our lymphoma days, we also run the ORs. So if there's a need for frozen section for tissue adequacy uh, for heme path, uh, we do that. And it's actually, you know, I shouldn't say we run it. Mostly the fellows are the ones that are doing that. But if they have a question, you know, we're always there back. And then uh, I have a dedicated flow service day where we do subspecialized complex flow cases. Uh, that's another part of my practice, which essentially, um, you know, um, and that's one of the good things. I'm, I'm just going to like uh, put in this little thing for heme path is that, you know, when you do flow and molecular, you can essentially now do your job from anywhere in the world. I can be sitting anywhere in the world and, you know, can be doing my job. Um, shopping. I mean, well, no, <laughs> that may not work. That may not work, but you know, you can be, you can be, you know, I have a home office that is just as nice yeah. as my work office. You know, yeah. um, I can easily work from home on most of my days. Uh, molecular, my molecular practice is mostly NGS heme for hematologic malignancies and liquid biopsies. Uh, but then, you know, obviously there are different molecular pathologies that focus on solid tumors. Uh, so it's even within molecular, you can subspecialize yeah, and, you know, focus yeah. on different subspecialties. And then I mostly focus on myeloid malignancies for my research. Um, and so I, I tend to want to be more on the myeloid service because it just jives better with my practice. Uh, but if I need to, I cover the lymphoma service as well. That's really, uh, it's really amazing how uh, subspecialized things are. I want to um, there are a couple of things I want to make sure we clear, uh, I clarify. One, I want to take you out of the MD Anderson milieu, just because yeah. I think we all know that MD Anderson is very differently resourced than other institutions, right? I mean, you know, there is no place in the world, to my knowledge, that have 36 hematopathologists. Yes, so that's my, accurate. <laughs> so my question is, um, in, in a regular practice, there are 
some academic hospitals, not your size, and there are community hospitals. What happens there, uh, you know, if somebody is having surgery or having a bone marrow biopsy at a community hospital, I guess, are they subspecialized enough where, you know, the patients are going to get proper diagnosis of lymphoid malignancies, myeloid malignancies? I mean, it's, it's you know, in oncology, there is a general oncologist that still exists um, and yes. they're subspecialized and oftentimes it's community versus academic. But what you're telling me is that even in community hospitals, these are subspecialized pathologists. Yes. So, so there is no general pathologist anymore? I mean, there are general pathologists. So for the most part, you know, I think HemePath is a little bit, um, I would say HemePath and bone and soft tissue and skin for the most part, um, because they're now so molecularly complex and the therapy depends so much on molecular characterization. A lot of, you know, even if, even if a general pathologist is looking at the bone marrow, it's very likely that they're going to say, you know, this, this looks like acute myeloid leukemia, but we're going to send it out for further characterization. And they can always consult an outside pathologist. Um, and, you know, we see, a, it's, so our patients that come with a diagnosis from outside centers, they bring their pathology with them. So they bring the slides, they bring the reports. And for the most part, you know, I mean, the outside reports are just as good. They're great. They're may, they may not be as detailed as, as the reports are here, but I mean, the quality is good. And I think one of the, one of the great things about being just a general surgical pathologist, um, you know, the, the, they realize that, you know, they're, obviously you cannot be super specialized and up to date on all the details in every surgical pathology. But I think they know that limitation and they say, you know, I can tell you that this is lymphoma. It's probably diffuse large B cell lymphoma, but it needs to go to a subspecialist and be further characterized. And I think that's how, you know, the practice is done uh, nowadays. So even if it goes to a surgical general pathologist first, it probably gets sent out. Unless it's a very, you know, straightforward, I don't know, like follicular lymphoma, diffuse large B cell lymphoma, something like that. So in your, in your um, as, as you go through, you meet residents, fellows, other folks, like what, what do you think um, are the most common misconceptions about pathology as a specialty or as pathology as a training and, and residency? We talked to me and you about this a little bit when we met at ASH, but I want to try to, you know, in your own words, where do you think there are some of misunderstandings, misconceptions that we would like to clarify to listeners. Absolutely. So I think the number one is, is what we talked about is the stereotype of the type of person that becomes a pathologist. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's a misconception. There are all sorts of people in pathology. Well, you give you us know, an example of how pathologists could interact with patients, for example, because you're right. There's some sure. of these some of these stereotypes where people say, well, uh, this person has went to pathology because they just don't want to talk to people, to patients. That, you know, that, 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 you know, if that's your reason, that's fine. Cause you can, you know, uh, it, you can avoid patient care a hundred percent, you know, direct patient interaction by doing pathology. And I think, you know, I wouldn't fault someone for not everybody have, you know, has to directly interact with patients. Right. So, but if you are the type of person that wants to interact with patients, you can do blood banking. So in, in most of the hospitals, blood bankers run the plasmapheresis facilities, right? So you can be a blood banker. You can do cytopathology. Cytopathologists do most of the superficial FNAs. You know, they, they do procedures, they interact with patients all the time. Uh, there are now, actually before the pandemic happened, um, Kamran Mirza and I had proposed a workshop to the Association for Pathology Chairs uh, as, um, you know, as a proposal for setting up path clinics where patients could come and actually, you know, look at their slides with their pathologists. Obviously, you know, there are limitations and hurdles to that because at this point it's uncompensated, right? It's not a reimbursable practice. But I think if it were something that, you know, caught on as a practice where you could actually interact with your pathologist, 
that could be something, but there are subspecialties in pathology where, where you can interact with patients. And then I would say, you know, I would encourage people to not forget about the, the interaction that you have on a daily basis with your colleagues, right? So you may not directly interact with the patient, but I'm constantly in contact with my leukemia colleagues. You know, we're constantly emailing, texting, call. We don't call as much. It's just not, it doesn't suit our practice. It's, you know, this practice is crazy busy. So, but if, if they wanted to, or they can just, you know, walk into my office, I can walk into their office. So if you're the type of person that likes to interact with people, you can certainly shape your practice that way. So stereotyping that the pathologists don't like to talk to people is, is something that we'd like to clarify. It's not the case, although some people may want to do the specialty because of that. Other misconceptions that you may think about? Other misconceptions is that, you know, you're constantly just sitting at a microscope and looking at slides. And that is absolutely not the case. You know, absolutely not the case. You can, you can again, form and shape your practice to your liking. And I think nowadays with, I mean, to me, it's almost like pathology is not one, sub, it's not one specialty anymore. It's so diverse. You know, you can have a full on research career if you want with, you know, a lab. Uh, you can, you can be, the, if, if you love looking at slides every day, you can do that. Although I would say that in, in my opinion, the majority of pathology practices, at least at large community, at large academic centers, are going to be fully um, image-based within five to 10 years. So the microscope as we know it may not exist anymore in, in 10 years, although I love my microscope and I have a very hard time letting go of it. That is very, very interesting. Uh, so Sana, my last question to you, which I really think hopefully it's fitting because we, we read about this a lot. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts. Um, uh, there's a lot of data not data, lots of talk, I guess, and chatter about AI and pathology, the applicability of artificial intelligence into pathology with the idea that AI could enhance the diagnostic accuracy and minimize the errors of pathology. Now, I'll admit I have not researched the literature to even know uh, what, what is the error rate, frankly, and how much AI will do that, nor do I, you know, again, I think there's a lot out there. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Any opinions Absolutely. on that? Uh, I think that's really because we, we hear a lot about it. Uh, even on social media, there's so much on it. I am a big, big proponent and fan of AI. And I will tell you, know, I think, again, in, maybe in the older generation, there's that fear of artificial intelligence replacing us. But I really think that artificial intelligence is going to enhance our practice and is going to make us better pathologists. And I'll give you examples of why. There are, you know, in, in my daily practice, there are repetitive, tedious tasks that I have to do that I think are probably, you know, really well suited to AI algorithms. Let's say finding a mycobacterial organism on an AFB stain may take me 10 minutes on a slide. If you, know, if you had an AI algorithm and applied it to that, did it in 30 seconds, I could spend that, you know, those 10 minutes doing something that actually requires human intelligence, right? That is actually, so I think it'll save me a lot of time and I can use my time better. Uh, and there are, you know, there are certainly tasks that I think at this point are not amenable or suitable for AI. And a lot of that is putting complicated and complex pictures together. And I don't think that that's impossible to achieve maybe within, you know, a few years, but at least at this point, I think, you know, we can use AI for sure to enhance our practice. Um, it's going to mean we're going to have to do a lot more in, you know, during our workday, but I think that's okay. If we're efficient, if we're more efficient, why not? I'd love to more, help more patients with my time. If, if I can become more efficient and do, you know, use my time better, maximize my time. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so, so, so you, do, you do see the time in the, um, in the next five years where there are certain AI algorithms that might actually help. Um, Absolutely. And we're doing that now, actually, you know, to give you an example, like quantification of immunohistochemical uh, staining uh, for some stains like KI67, 
can now be done you know, with, with AI algorithms much better than a human can actually count. Yeah. So um, what, what if, you have, if you had the power of modifying or altering the curriculum of pathology residency, what, what, what do, where do you think the opportunities are during medical school curriculum and during pathology residency uh, to, to change or to enhance in a way that really uh, allows better exposure to the specialty? Right. I think, you know, there, there are limitations to this, the current system because I think, you know, it's not because the system is flawed, but I think there are limitations that are inherent to the way we practice. I think I'm going to start with residency. I think one of the things I wish I had uh, more in residency was autonomy, because I think you're very, you know, everything a pathology resident does is later reviewed and ultimately finalized by an attending in, in almost the majority of the programs that exist. And so I think, you know, it's like you graduate today and you're a fellow that has never done anything independently. And then you're expected to just be full on independent the next day. And to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think, you know, it's understandable because Obviously, the attendings are the ones that are ultimately responsible for anything that goes out, and that's a limitation of the system. But I think if we can afford to give our trainees more autonomy, uh, that would be very helpful to their practice in the future. Now, for students, I would say, if there are any students that are listening to this, you know, make your own way. If you think you're interested in pathology, don't, don't, you know, don't believe the stereotypes. Get yourself a rotation in pathology, go spend a month in a pathology department and get exposure, you know, do an elective in pathology and see what it's really like and see what, you know, the, the real world practice of pathology is like. That's uh, fascinating. What questions I should have asked you that I may have not asked you and, and, and I needed to? I mean, I think it's a given from speaking to me, but maybe that, you know, whether or, whether or not I'm happy with the choice that I made. And, you know, obviously I would tell you, yes. You look happy. <laughs> you look happy and you look like, you know, you're enjoying yourself in the, in the specialty. And I think. I love it. Um, yeah. It seems like, you know, it's, uh, it, it was the right choice for you, but um, I want to make sure that we cover, we cover all of the, the things I think hopefully listeners know more about pathology now know about the really complexity and the subspecialty of pathology and the amount of training that you go through and and what you actually do and it's not really about just doing an autopsy on on a, on a show it's in fact the last autopsy you did was probably 10 years ago uh the last autopsy i did i think was in 2011 yes yeah. exactly 10 years ago yeah. And, you know, they actually decreased the autopsy. So we, we had to do before when I graduated, we had to do 50 to be eligible to sit for the boards. I think now it's 30. They've reduced it to 30 just because it's, you know, nobody does autopsies anymore. It's hard to get those numbers. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we would get those numbers at the medical examiner's office. Um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, autopsy is just it. it it's obviously a great part of pathology education because that's how you learn normal histology because nobody's biopsying normal tissue, right? So you do autopsies and you see normal tissue. But um, I think, you know, it's just like a very tiny fraction of what, what you know, and in fact, I didn't like doing autopsies at all. So. Well, look, this was really, really, first of all, it was a lot of fun to record. And I think I learned a lot uh, more about you, your career, but also about the specialty at large. And I really hope that listeners got a glimpse of what your life looks like as a pathologist, as well as uh, what, you know, what they can expect as they are applying for residency or fellowship and so on. And, you know, there are a lot of controversies in pathology. So as you know, on Healthcare Unfiltered, I always like to do a couple of debates. So uh, I'm going to pencil you in for a future debate pertaining to Absolutely. pathology. So, so get ready. I love that. that. I'd love that. I love a good debate. Thank you so much, Sanam. Thank you for having me, really. It was a pleasure. And, you know, if any of your listeners or students that have questions about pathology, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'd love to answer your questions, get you interested in the field.
Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support. Please let me know what you think about this episode and other episodes you've listened to. You can do that by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com or by visiting my website, www.shadinabhan.com. I'd love to hear your opinions, your ideas, your feedback, your critical appraisal of the podcast. And if you are a loyal listener, make sure you reach out to me to get one of the famous podcast t-shirts. I have the gray color and the black color with a nice logo of Healthcare Unfiltered. Again, I appreciate your support. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Sir William Osler. The best preparation for tomorrow is to do today's work superbly well. Until next time, take care.